If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. Today's Everything You Wanted to Know episode is all about the Suez Crisis. The 1956 diplomatic debacle that dealt a serious blow to Britain's standing in the post-war world. Our production editor, Spencer Mizzen, put your questions on the incident, along with popular internet search queries, to Alex von Tunzelman, a historian, screenwriter and author, whose books include Blood and Sand, Suez, Hungary and The Crisis That Shook the World. So Alex, um, the Suez Crisis, it's, uh, it's an ep- episode in 20th century history of which I think many of our listeners will have a, a fairly good knowledge some may even remember it. Um, others, however, I guess, won't be quite so familiar with it. So um, I was wondering if we could start by you know, turning to one of the most popular um, queries on, on the internet, and that is, what was the Suez Crisis? I, I wonder if you could give us a brief overview of, of, of how, how the crisis unfolded. Absolutely, yeah. And I think this does come up a lot because the Suez Crisis is one of these events in history that gets referenced a lot. So it often is brought up. I know it was during, you know, Brexit. There were people like Gordon Brown saying this is the biggest crisis since Suez. But I think a lot of people don't necessarily know exactly what happened. And there's a lot of confusion about it because there was confusion at the time um, uh, as well. It is a complicated story, um, although a very fascinating one. So it brings in really the whole world and so so many different nations and interests. But to give you the kind of the quick version, the quickest possible version, um, effectively, the crisis began in around July 1956. Um, the American government cancelled uh, a project to build an, the Aswan Dam in Egypt to build this kind of large dam. And the Egyptian leader, Gamal Abdel Nasser, responded to that by nationalising the Suez Canal. So the Suez Canal had previously been, obviously it was built by the French. It was owned 
it, originally by a kind of international consortium of, uh, of various countries, not including Britain. Britain then bought in under Disraeli. Uh, but it was so it's sort of controlled internationally. And anyway, NASA nationalised it. This has always been a bone of contention with Egypt. Um, so the response to that was that Anthony Eden, the British Prime Minister, Guy Mollet, the French Prime Minister, are extremely angry about this um, and sort of spent that summer trying to rustle up an invasion force, uh, some kind of intervention in Egypt. Uh, the United States was very much against that, uh, very, very strongly against it from the start. So it was kind of, you know, there were all sorts of ups and downs in that general process, very complicated. But at the end of October 1956, the British and French governments took matters into their own hands, really, um, and had a secret meeting uh, in Paris, in Sèvres, on the outskirts of Paris, with Israel representatives of the government of Israel, and came up with this quite crazy plan um, for what they were going to do. So the idea, and this plan was so crazy that actually a lot of people really did not believe at the time and afterwards that this could possibly have happened. The plan was that Israel would invade Egypt, um, a, a sort of fake provocation by Egyptians, and Egypt, you know, Israel was responding to invade publicly Britain and France would condemn that um, and they would intervene as peacekeepers to protect the canal. That was that was the sort of public sport, but privately, of course, they would support Israel. Um, and the idea was that they would remove Nasser from the Egyptian presidency um, and put in some kind of new government that was more supportive and put the canal back under what they called international control. So this plan kicked off on 29th of October um, but it became apparent very, very quickly that something was very wrong with it, um, partly because, you know, they sort of immediately issued this ultimatum on the 30th of October for both Israel and Egypt to stop fighting and withdraw 10 miles from the canal, or the US, uh, sorry, or the UK and France would intervene within 12 hours. Now, this was a big problem. It was really obvious this had been written a long way ahead of time, because in fact, what was happening at that point on the 30th of October was that the front between Israel and Egypt was actually around 125 miles east of the canal in Sinai. So what they were actually asking was for Egypt to withdraw 135 miles into its own territory and for Israel, the aggressor, to advance 115 miles into Egyptian territory. So immediately it became apparent to everyone that this was actually a kind of conspiracy or a plan that was going on. All uh, French troops were immediately assisting Israeli troops. Uh, so it became obvious it was nonsense. So very quickly, the US got involved, um, set a kind of ultimatum. The Soviets were very distracted because this happened exactly the same week as the Hungarian uprising in 1956, another very major event. But at the end, they got involved as well and threatened rocket attacks on Britain and France. Eden backed down, was forced to pull out. So by about the 5th or 6th of November, um, it was sort of over. I mean, British troops stayed in until Christmas, but effectively the fighting was then over. Um, so it was very embarrassing. It was the end of Eden's political career um, and a real disaster for kind of international relations, uh, certainly for Britain. Um, France kind of got away with it a bit more. Now, um, Dizzy C on Instagram asks, why did it happen? Now, you, you've kind of just explained that, but what I wanted to know was, why why were Britain and France prepared to take such a gamble? What was it about the Suez that they thought, you know, they really made them really roll the dice in this way? Well, I think that's a really good question, because the story I've just told you is a kind of, you know, fairly conventional version of it. But actually, one of the things that I really looked into with the book is that this motivation doesn't make a lot of sense for why it happened. Um, and in fact, what you can see much earlier, so from in March 1956, so this is months and months before July, before the canal was nationalised, 
um, there is, it, on the record, Eden phoned one of his government ministers and said, I want him murdered about Nasser. So Eden already had a plan to oust Nasser, to kill him specifically, um, months and months before Nasser nationalised the canal. So I think we can say that that was not actually the cause in his mind. Guy Mollet, the Prime Minister of France, a very similar motivation. He was deeply concerned with Algeria, which was then undergoing sort of independence thing. He was convinced that Nasser was the whole reason for the Algerian independence movement. So he also, from February 1956, we can see him on record also wanting to oust Nasser to get rid of him. So I think really, if you want to look at the actual motivation, clearly there is something much deeper than the canal going on. Clearly, both of those leaders had strong feelings against Nasser, and it's really much more of a coup against him than a concern about the canal. And what was it about Nasser that provoked them in, in, in this way? It's a really interesting question. And I think actually you do have to look at that there is a kind of personal aspect to this. Um, Eden had only met Nasser once um, and it hadn't gone well at all. It had been in Egypt. And I mean, Eden was, you know, quite sophisticated in this respect. He spoke Arabic and Persian. He, you know, done Oriental languages at university. Um, but he got on very poorly with NASA. That meeting didn't go well at all. And there's sort of some suggestion around it that it there was some kind of insecurity that he felt around him in a kind of almost a macho competitive way. NASA was this really big, young, you know, macho guy who had been in the army and so on. And Eden felt kind of unmanned by him at some level. And I know that this sounds, you know, sort of like a novel, but actually... This is quite important in terms of his personal relation to him because there wasn't really a very good rationale for being so angry with him. And what if you look at, you know, these communications from Eden and Molly, they talk about Nasser and they're constantly going on about how he's going to become the next Hitler. This is their big concern. Nasser will be Hitler. They constantly compare him to Hitler in the papers. And the American government got so annoyed with this that they actually produced this massive briefing paper on how NASA was nothing like Hitler and had nothing in common with him. It's a completely different person and that this wasn't actually a legitimate concern. So I think it, there is a psychological element. And similarly with Molle, you know, he travelled to Algeria in February 1956 and had this horrible experience that was known as La Journée des Tomates, the Day of Tomatoes, where he was pelted with rotten vegetables and fruit. Um, and again, he really blamed Nasser for this, even though actually the Algerians had their own independence movement quite independently of Nasser. I mean, Nasser was supporting it, but he got this idea in his head that it was all down to Nasser and that without Nasser, the Algerians would calm down and accept French rule and, you know, being part of this metropolitan France kind of scheme. Um, and that really wasn't true, but he convinced himself of it in, at some level. So I think it's a kind of deeply personal enmity at, at some level. It's it's fascinating. There is because and people at the time found it hard to understand. You know, you find that Eden's colleagues, for instance, couldn't really understand why he was so fixated on Nasser. Really. Now, as you mentioned earlier, the Suez Crisis effectively uh, destroyed Anthony Eden's reputation, mm -hmm. which leads me to a question uh, which was submitted on Instagram by David H. Simmons. He asked, what effect did Eden's illness have on his decision-making? This is a question that is very, very hard to answer, but very interesting. Um, so Eden was not a well man. He hadn't been for a long time. He had a pretty sort of poor constitution, as they'd have said in those days. So there are records of him long before this sort of having fainting episodes, passing out at international summits, all this sort of thing would happen. And on the 5th of October, 1956, so, you know, sort of... At, 
when this crisis was very much still going on, you know, before the British and French and Israeli conspiracy, he actually had a collapse. He was visiting his wife in hospital and he had a physical collapse and actually had to be hospitalised himself for a few days after that. And I mean, colleagues said of him after that, that he was, you know, I quote, practically living on Benzedrine. He was medicated we think, you know, with amphetamines, but there, his medical records haven't been released. So we don't know exactly what he was taking, how much of it he was taking. So it's hard to be precise about the effect that would have had. But, you know, certainly if you took amphetamines, you would not be advised to drive a car these days, let's say, let alone yeah, sure, yeah. start a nuclear conflict. <laughs> um, so, you know, this is obviously, he. I, I don't think he was a well man, but at the same time, it's not a complete explanation for what happened because, for instance, Eden's cabinet went along with him and they weren't all on Benzedrine. So, you know, there's a combination of factors here, but it can't be ruled out. Everyone at the time thought it was a factor. And what was his reputation like going into the conflict? I mean, he obviously had a, a, very, a very good Second World War. Um, was he highly regarded by the British people ahead of the Suez Crisis? So Eden had kind of had this very long career of mostly being foreign secretary on and off um, for decades and was really very well regarded as a foreign secretary. Um, you know, he'd been kind of, he'd actually had some amazing achievements, including in the Middle East. As I say, he was, you know, linguistically very talented. He had good relations with some of these nations, um, particularly with Iraq, um, with Iraq's Prime Minister Nouri uh, was a very sort of close friend of his, really. And, you know, the it, he really had this very good reputation. Um, but for a long time, he'd been kind of prime minister and waiting as Winston Churchill hung on, as we know, for years and years and years. And Churchill really became quite cruel about it. He would needle Eden constantly about his poor health and how he was, you know, not up to the job and all of this. He, would, he was really quite personal about it. Um, and uh, and basically, sort of eventually, when, when Churchill retired and Eden had sort of waited for decades to get this role... Um, it was that sort of awful poison chalice moment where things started going pretty badly, you know. And he, he so he came into the prime ministership in in 1955. Um, economically, it was a bad situation. You know, the balance of payments was off. There was, you know, a kind of very unpopular austerity drive. Some of us may think that these situations do not only occur once in history. And really, you know, he'd sort of, I think he was sort of scrabbling around, having hoped that he would have this kind of golden prime ministership. It wasn't coming together by 1956. And that may also have been a factor in what he felt he had to take some kind of action, do something. <laughs> now, um, one of the chief reasons that the French and British were forced into a humiliating climb down in 56 was American and Soviet opposition to the operation. And um, this leads me to a question from Linia K on Instagram. Um, and that question is, how much did the US really know ahead of the Anglo-French intervention? I mean, did they see this coming in any way? So the fascinating thing is they didn't, actually. Um, I mean, they, they knew that obviously Britain and France wanted to invade, wanted to do something. That, that had been fairly clear from the start because the minute the canal was um, nationalised by Nasser, straight away Eden said he wanted to invade and straight away Eisenhower told him, absolutely not, don't do that. But you can tell something of Eden's level of delusion over this. Um, so straight away on the 31st of July, um, straight after the canal had been nationalised, 
Um, Eisenhower heard that Britain and France were thinking of invading Egypt and going straight in. And he wrote this very strong letter to Eden. So it says, um, he expresses kind of horror um, at your decision to employ force without delay or attempting any intermediate and less drastic steps. And he says, I have given you my own personal conviction as well as that of my associates as to the unwisdom of even contemplating the use of military force at this moment. And now we can see kind of how delusional Eden is because when Eden wrote his memoirs a couple of years later, his analysis of this letter says the president did not rule out the use of force. Now, that's somebody who really isn't listening to what's <laughs> being said, quite yeah. honestly. You know, it's it's actually a real kind of conflict of information. So Amer America was trying from the start they did not want an invasion. They did not want it to happen. You know, they set up this big, again, international conferences over the summer to try to talk the way out of it, all of this. Um, and really, I mean, that the other thing is that by the end of October 1956, the issue had largely been resolved through the United Nations anyway. There had been, effectively, Egypt had agreed to the international demands to have kind of, you know, a joint control over the canal and all this kind of stuff. It, it had all been settled. So actually, when this happened, when Israel invaded and immediately everybody realised that it was effectively a kind of a, a fake war, a kind of a feint, um, the Americans were absolutely furious. And there was a lot of talk in Washington about perfidious Albion. Uh, there was a lot of, you know, Eisenhower said that Britain should be allowed to boil in its own oil. You know, there was absolute fury about it. And Eisenhower also, you know, was a five-star general. He knew he knew some language from World War II and much <laughs> of that language was deployed, <laughs> most of which uh, people have left off the record. But sometimes you can find uh, records of this. He certainly used all the words. <laughs> so, you know, the Americans were really absolutely furious when it happened. So I think you can see from the kind of fury of their reaction that by that point, they thought they had dodged it. They thought they'd managed to put Britain off. Um, and, and then it absolutely furious when it became clear they hadn't. And that it had been kept from them, you know, as a very close ally. They had not been consulted. And, and what, did, what did the US threaten Britain with? That's a question from Diogo Morgado on Twitter. So effectively, the way that the US was kind of able to stop this crisis was sort of by a use of sanctions. And some have said this is the only successful use of sanctions in history, um, where effectively this is about oil. And I mean, what happened was that, you know, despite the fact that Eden had said that his motives were all about keeping the Suez Canal open, the British war plan involved um, immediately sinking block ships in the Suez Canal, um, which, of course, blocked it straight away. And, I mean, everybody knew that would happen, and it was just a really bad plan. Um, so the block ships kind of, you know, were sunk in the canal. The canal was blocked. Now, as we know, if the Suez Canal is blocked, world trade kind of stops. And at that time particularly, um, Britain bought its oil from the Middle East. It bought it from Arab nations, and it was able to do that in pounds, crucially. Suez Canal's blocked. At that stage, there were not the kind of pipelines that we now have over land. And so effectively, no oil priced in pounds was coming to the UK. The only other option to buy oil was to buy it from the US. But what Eisenhower insisted on is that that oil had to be bought in dollars. He wouldn't let Britain buy it in pounds while the military action was continuing. Um, now, Britain's dollar reserves were extremely low at that point, And effectively, you know, simplest possible way, Britain could not afford. They did not have the dollars to uh, buy American oil. So it was literally a question of keeping the lights on. So the game was up then as soon as the Americans put that on the table, the game was up for, for Eden and Britain. It, 
certainly seems to have been, I mean, there's still some discussion about exactly what made the game be up. I think it was almost certainly that American uh, intervention made it very difficult. Macmillan completely panicked about that. He was the chancellor at the time. Um, and he really did freak out, is <laughs> kind of the way to put it, about what was going to happen. Um, and possibly he actually disproportionately freaked out. There's a lot of discussion about that too. At the same time, though, and this was all happening on basically the 5th to 6th of November, that was also when the Soviet government, well, Nikolai Boganin, threatened um, rocket attacks on Britain and France. So this was widely interpreted as a threat of a nuclear attack. And, you know, ever since... Um, this has often been dismissed by the kind of British and French saying, oh, well, you know, we never really believed that. But actually, if you look at the papers at the time, the problem is they couldn't be 100% sure that that wasn't going to happen. And that was obviously a terribly frightening threat. Um, so the Soviet, certainly the Soviet government, Nikita Khrushchev, absolutely thought that he was responsible for ending the Suez crisis because he thought that threat was the reason Britain and France stopped. So, you know, if, if you ask somebody in Russia now, they might well say, the Russians stopped it, sure. um, so, and, so what, and the Americans so, think they stopped it. So that, that actually leads me on to the next question, uh, also from Linnea K on Instagram. What what was the Soviets' motivations for becoming embroiled in the conflict? I mean, what what was in it for them? Well, the Soviets had this really difficult setup because it really was happening absolutely simultaneously with the with this first kind of major revolution in the satellite states, the Hungarian rebellion. Um, and that was kicking off absolutely simultaneously with this. So, and that also was something that took them by surprise. In fact, that took everybody by surprise. It also took the United States by surprise. Um, so in Hungary, this was kind of a big national rebellion against Soviet control, which had been you know, very, very strict in the satellite states. It was um, still very Stalinist, even though you were getting at that point some liberalisation in the Soviet Union itself. Um and it was very much a popular revolution. You know, it was really being... And it really scared the Soviets. And they responded to it eventually with overwhelming force, having, you know, kind of dithered around it a little bit. But effectively, that meant that for the crucial few days of the Suez crisis, so between kind of the 29th of October and the Israeli invasion through to the kind of 5th of November or so, the Soviets were really dealing with Hungary and they really had their hands full with that. So... They didn't really have a lot of time and attention to give to Suez, and that probably held them back. That's probably why they didn't threaten anything until, you know, the 6th of November and this, this crucial letter from Bolganin. Um, so in a sense, they were kind of kept out of it, but I'm sure that wouldn't have been the case if Hungary hadn't been happening simultaneously. I mean, the Soviets had interests in the Middle East. They were kind of, you know, they had a relationship with some people in Syria and this all gets very, very mixed up in the incredibly complicated politics of Cold War communism, because the United States, certainly there was a suspicion in the State Department that NASA was a communist, but actually that was pretty poorly founded. I mean, NASA had been imprisoning communists um, and, you know, sort of was quite keen actually to get in with free trade and, and with Western powers. Um, so, so that kind of, you know, it was quite a flimsy accusation, but it was one that was thrown around an awful lot in the Cold War um, that any leader we don't like is a communist. Um, and actually the CIA had been planning this completely mad kind of triple coup plan in the Middle East where they were going to take down um, Syria and Egypt and Saudi Arabia all in one go um, in 1956. And, you know, that 
Syria was the only one that they nearly got to have a go at and that had to be cancelled at the last minute because of the Suez crisis. So that also upset them considerably. But there were very different opinions in different parts of American government. The CIA on the ground in the Middle East were actually pretty, generalisation, but pretty pro-NASA. They saw him as potentially a very good asset for American interests. Back in the State Department in Washington, there were people who were much more, much more against him, thought ideologically he was problematic. So, you know, it's complicated. (laughs) (laughs) Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Before Suez, people used to speak about the three superpowers and they would talk about the US, uh, the USSR and Britain, because still you had a British Empire. So Britain was spoken of as a superpower. After Suez, that stops. People no longer, they speak of two superpowers and they do not speak of Britain as one anymore. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. Let's talk about Nasser in a little bit more detail then. He he obviously emerged from his crisis uh, with his reputation enhanced. What did Suez do for him domestically? That's that's a question from H. Nickel on Instagram. Well, essentially, I mean, uh, Suez was incredibly good for NASA's reputation. I mean, even though his troops lost every battle, he won the war. It's a sort of paradox, you know, that really... But personally, he was very upset by it because that happened. You know, as, you know, colonel in the army himself, a military man and so on, he was shocked by how poorly the Egyptian troops really performed against the Israeli invaders. And that really worried him. That was extremely concerning from his point of view from the future. So he was actually very depressed after the crisis personally. But in terms of his reputation, I mean, obviously it was amazing. Suddenly he was this guy who could be held up as defeating, you know, Western imperialism of Britain and France and, of course, Israel, which in the Arab world is, you know, has its own kind of whole mythology around it. So, you know, this this enhanced his reputation tremendously. And I mean, you can certainly see, I think, 
the history afterwards of the United Arab Republic that was kind of a union between um, Egypt and Syria from 1958 to 1961. You know, this was built on Nasser's incredible charisma and and kind of, you know, reputation out of this. But the United Arab Republic didn't last terribly long either and, you know, probably wouldn't be seen as an enormous success story. Um, but yeah, so it improved his reputation, but I think at... Personally, he wasn't that pleased about it. <laughs> you know, the person who was really happy in the days after the Suez Crisis was Nikita Khrushchev, who thought that he'd stopped it. So he was he was a cock a hoop. He saw himself as a main winner. Absolutely. I mean, I mean Ed, Ed Boyman asked on Instagram, what impact did the crisis have on Arab nationalism? I mean, did, was it a game changer in that respect in any way? I don't think it was really a game changer for that, but I think it did shore up. Um, Arab nationalism. And I think it did, um, you know, it kind of played to a lot of existing interests, which, you know, as I say, the kind of touch points in the Middle East were often about British and French imperialism, which of course in the region had been such a big deal. And this was this kind of, you know, headline defeat of that. And of course, the defeat of Israel. And so these were kind of, you know, huge uh, rallying points. And certainly now, if you go to uh, the town of Suez and go to the Egyptian uh, museum of the Suez crisis where you can really, you can view this from the Egyptian point of view. It's very much about that. It's about the incredibly brave Egyptian soldiers. Well, this is this wonderful series of paintings that they had done in North Korea, which show uh, a lot of things that are not quite on the historical record, but are sort of, you know, fascinating kind of pieces of propaganda about how the Egyptian army performed and so forth. So it certainly has reinforced that. But did it actually change anything in that? I think not particularly. I think places like Algeria were already having, you know, their own independence movements. This this was, you know, it was an ongoing complex story. And But it was, I mean, certainly as a propaganda victory, it was massive, sure. And back in Britain, I mean, how widespread was opposition uh, to the war in the UK? Um, was it universal or did a lot of people support the government? And, and actually, this is a question from somebody called Hugh Berkemeyer on Facebook. He's asking, how did Eden sell the war to the people of Britain? Well, Eden didn't try very hard to sell the war because he was presenting himself as a peacekeeper at the time. You know, he was pretending like he was some kind of international, you know, <laughs> policeman rather than rather than an aggressor. Um, that was untrue, as we now know. Um, so in a sense, the whole thing was kind of a front. Um the reaction in Britain is interesting. There were lots of big demonstrations against the intervention and they were very public. And I think Eden was quite shocked by those. He was shocked that people didn't swallow the story, that this was a peaceful intervention and a police action. Um, you know, he was really taken, he sort of watched some of the demonstrations from kind of behind a curtain in Whitehall and he was sort of watched them out and I think he was really shocked by it. But of course, there were different opinions because some people did believe the British government's story. Um, and even though it seemed rather incredible and lots of things quickly undercut it, people didn't really necessarily think the government would simply just lie about something as massive as this. Um, so, you know, some people did try to rationalise it and believe it. But um, it, as the events wore on and, of course, in the you know decade or so afterwards, as more and more information came out, it really did become apparent that the British government had simply lied. And, you know, this this thing was a conspiracy and a farce. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the kind of uh, up, fine upstanding action that a lot of people would want to support. And I think, 
you know, I don't think you would really find very many people now who would say that this was justifiable. Um, I think most people would say it was a terrible misstep at best. <laughs> sure. Now, we, we, we hear a lot about the, the, the geopolitics and the diplomacy, but I, I wanted to ask you about what it was like for uh, troops on the ground. And, and this is a question from Sean Critchley on Facebook. And she, yeah, the, the question there was, what was it like for the soldiers involved and, and what was it like for people living in the conflict zone? So the troops on the ground, I mean, had sort of fascinating you know, complex experiences and that a lot of them weren't really told exactly what was happening. It was all supposed to be terribly secretive and they'd sort of been, you know, for for months kind of amassing these bases in Malta and Cyprus and so on. And, and everyone kind of knew, I mean, especially because there was open talk of an invasion that summer, people knew that there was a possibility of this. When it actually happened, I mean, there were, seemed to have been pretty... Um, strong opinions among some of the troops that this was a bad idea. And it was also, you know, the operation was really very badly planned. Part of the reason for that is that the invasion operation Musketeer, as it was called, you know, this, uh, had been um, planned as an invasion. And then very quickly when this conspiracy was made with Israel, it had to be kind of turned into something that would look like a peacekeeping operation. Now, of course, those are two completely different things. So a lot of the prep was extremely bad and the troops found themselves having to kind of you know, participate in basically this pantomime. Um, but also it was so badly planned that sometimes the troops just didn't really know what was going on. Before Suez, people used to speak about the three superpowers and they would talk about the US, uh, the USSR and Britain, because still you had a British empire. So Britain was spoken of as a superpower. After Suez, that stops. People no longer, they speak of two superpowers and they do not speak of Britain as one anymore. So clearly it had a kind of cultural impact on how people thought about power in the world. Even if, you know, the reality may be something else, this was this was a notable stage that that happened. Um, I think in term, what became very apparent is that Britain could not perform an action like this without the United States. That's the significant point, that it actually it couldn't pull it off. So, you know, coming out of that, interestingly, in Europe, you started to have some talk about how some kind of union of European states was necessary to counterbalance American power. This, of course, resulted eventually in the EU, but a long time before that actually happened. Um, in Britain, there was a kind of realisation that it was no longer really possible to go it alone, that the United States was really the big power and that if they said no, it was no. So did it kind of trigger a period of soul-searching and navel-gazing in uh, Britain, would you say? I think sort of less soul-searching perhaps than you'd think because the recovery of relations with the US was quite quick, impressively so, actually. You know, this really did cause incredibly bad feeling and damage at the time, but I think one thing that helped actually was that Eden quite quickly left office after this happened. He didn't hang around and that was good because it would have been really hard to rebuild that relationship. Macmillan came in instead and Macmillan, even though Macmillan had been really responsible for quite a lot of the Suez crisis, um, it was a new face. It was a, definitely a new beginning and he was able to re-establish good relations with the US quite quickly. So in a sense, that was smoothed over I think, quite, you know, much more effectively than it might have been under different circumstances. However, it did have a long tail. And one one place where we can really see that is that it was brought up a lot when the US asked Britain to join it going into Vietnam, is that it was quite frequently said in Whitehall, no, we remember Suez. 
So clearly there was a tale in terms of these, what, what is talked about as a special relationship between Britain and the US. I mean, much as people still talk about it now, I think actually that was seriously damaged by 1956. And I don't think it really recovered after that. I think after that, it's become something very different. Sure. Now, we haven't talked about the French uh, that much so far. I mean, was the political fallout as serious in Paris as it was in London? It wasn't. And this is also something quite interesting, is that the French response was quite different in that, uh, first of all, when you had the whole planning of this conspiracy with Britain and France and Israel, um, Britain was really the only country that was determined to keep that secret. Um, Britain really kind of was obsessed with the idea, well, Eden specifically was obsessed with the idea that no one would find this out, kept trying to cover it up. Even in his memoirs, he was still denying collusion, um, even though we know it to be a historical fact. You know, he was deeply in denial about it. Um, France really had no shame about doing this, which is why you see that, you know, the French could not really be bothered to keep this secret. They were quite open about it, um, about just pursuing it as part of French interests and, you know, as part of the conflict with Algeria and trying to suppress the Algerian independence movement. Um, Israel, of course, was also not ashamed of it. Israel kind of, in fact, was at that stage, you know, and you have to obviously think it's often in 1956, the Israel of that time was very different from the Israel of today. It was, you know, not anything like such a militarily strong nation at that time. It didn't have fantastically strong international alliances. And of course, this is very, very soon after it was even founded, very soon after World War II and the Holocaust and these awful traumas. So Israel was actually delighted at that stage to be allying with such great nations as Britain and France. This was kind of a real jump up for it. So both France and Israel had absolutely no interest in keeping this thing secret. Um, and again, that really undercut Eden, who was desperate to keep it secret. Um, so the French kind of afterwards, you know, really shrugged their shoulders and and didn't hide the fact that they had done this. It's, it's only in Britain that it kind of caused this... Um, this terrible shame, really. I think I think the French were just much less ashamed that they'd done it. <laughs> right. Now, I've got a couple of questions here which I'm just going to bundle together. So they're, they're kind of similar. The first is from uh, Tracy C.A. on Instagram. And that is, what was the impact of the crisis on the trajectory of the Cold War? The second is on Facebook from Daniel O'Donnell. Uh, he asked, did the Suez crisis distract or prevent uh, the U.S.? Uh, or NATO from intervening in and helping to resolve the Hungarian Revolution of 1956. So I guess that the, both these questions are really asking how how did the crisis impact on relations between America and the Soviet Union? Yeah, I mean, it really does kind of, to some extent, um, what's happening at this time in Egypt and Hungary is acting as a proxy for American and Soviet Cold War playbook and fears and so on. Um, although, of course, there was no direct conflict between America and the Soviet Union. Um, there was definitely hope in Hungary that there would be an international intervention, that there would be help from these countries that had been talking a good game about how much they opposed communism and so on, that there would be some assistance, but there was no assistance for Hungary. And that was, it's hard to say now exactly whether that would have been different if there hadn't been the Suez crisis at the same time. I mean, certainly with the Suez crisis happening, there was absolutely no chance of an intervention in Hungary. Had there not been, even then, I mean, this had 
this is something that had been talked about in the American government. We now know from secret papers that people like um, Richard Nixon, who was vice president at that time, had absolutely talked about, um, you know, it would be quite useful if the Soviets really cracked down on some local movements to give us a pretext and all this. But at the time, I mean, it would have been logistically incredibly hard to send assistance to Hungary. I mean, it doesn't have a coastline. You know, how how do you get it in? You've got to you think about 1956 military methods. You know, you're going to, you know, do some kind of precursor of the Berlin airlift. Are you going to fly in support? How, how would you do this? It would be very difficult. You know, Hungary was, apart from the Austrian border, largely surrounded by other Soviet satellite states. So... Logistically incredibly difficult, but also they didn't have a lot on the ground. You know, the Soviets were really convinced that the Hungarian Revolution had been started by American provocateurs. Um, But actually, that really wasn't true. We know from CIA records that, in fact, they only had about seven or eight um, agents in the whole of Hungary at this time. They didn't have the kind of muscle there that could in any way have started, let alone finished something like this. So I think, you know, in a sense... Hungary probably got a lot less attention from the rest of the world because Suez was happening at the same time. You know, there might well have been more international pressure on the Soviets if the world hadn't been distracted by this kind of, you know, conflagration in Egypt at the time. Maybe that would have made things run differently, but would there have been a foreign intervention from NATO or, you know, anything like that? I think it would have been incredibly hard to do. Um, And also, of course, risk kicking off a much bigger war. I mean, you know, it was huge kind of fears about this domino effect and about these things kind of kicking off each other. And that was one of the massive fears that you can see actually both, you know, in the Soviet government and in the American government about how this could turn into something much bigger. I mean, at the time, people were frequently using the phrase in papers, World War III. That's what their really big concern was about Suez and Hungary happening all at the same time. So, you know, they certainly thought it could be serious. They certainly thought it could be nuclear. And either of those things, you know, it really could have escalated very seriously indeed. Um, But I think you can't see much appetite for that in certainly neither the US nor the Soviet Union wanted that war to get become a war between them. And finally, Alex, this is a question from Masha M on Instagram. What would you say is the most significant impact of the Suez crisis? Well, it's hard to say because it depends where you, which country you look at. It had a pretty serious impact in all of those countries. Um, I think in Egypt, it's a kind of landmark of nationalism and independence, source of national pride. I think in Israel, it was initially lauded and seen as a great success, but afterwards the kind of territorial gains were reversed and so on. And, you know, it wasn't then seen as such a great moment after all. Um, The Soviet Union's kind of intense relief that the revolution in Hungary had been stopped and then jubilation that they had stopped the Suez crisis in in their view. Um, In the United States, I think it was there was just a great deal of anger about how Britain in particular had behaved. I think perhaps they <laughs> expected better of Britain and didn't didn't receive it. In France, as I say, they were really very defiant about it, didn't didn't mind very much what had happened, um, and you know, were quite bullish about having taken this action. In Britain, it's kind of more interesting because it does mark this sea change. It does mark a moment when it became very obvious to a lot of people in Britain that 
no longer really was Britain one of those major, major forces in the world. No longer really was it a superpower and could it stand alongside those nations. And so there is a kind of psychological rebalancing there. And I think that's why now in British politics, it is often referred to, it does often come up as a touch point because, you know, even though the effects of it, I mean, you know, as I say, in terms of relations with the US or anything, were repaired to some extent, you know, fairly quickly. And ultimately, I mean, you know, voters in Birmingham probably don't particularly care whether the Suez Canal is controlled by one consortium or another. You know, it doesn't necessarily have this kind of impact directly on people there. But I think it did have an impact on, you know, British foreign policy from then on, on how how the government how successive governments, different governments, viewed their kind of role in the world. Yes, sure, because it limited what could then be done. That was Alex von Tunzelman. Blood and Sand, Suez, Hungary and the Crisis that Shook the World is out now published by Simon & Schuster. You can find a link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in tomorrow to hear Jonathan Dimbleby on Operation Barbarossa. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.